I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. We're all looking for ways to save, especially on medical bills. But where do you start? Unless you're a medical billing expert, finding savings can seem impossible. HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance and flags errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. Saving starts with knowing where to look. Visit HealthLock.com today before you see another healthcare provider. Hello, dear listeners. Brian and I are on the road again. I'm so excited to be on the road again. We're at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, recording some interviews for the pod, which we'll be excited to share with you soon. But in the meantime, we didn't want to leave you hanging. Or pining for us. So we decided to dip into our archives and revisit one of our favorite episodes on the show, and that is our conversation with filmmaking powerhouse Ava DuVernay. So we originally spoke with Ava last summer while she was editing A Wrinkle in Time, which just hit theaters this month. So for those of you who might have missed it the first time around or who want an excuse to revisit Ava's brilliance and eloquence, this one is for you. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, I'm very excited about our podcast today. It's a conversation with Ava DuVernay, who has become so accomplished. She's everywhere these days. I first met her at the Sundance Film Festival a couple of years ago, and she really wasn't a household name back then, but I think today she's become one. Of course, she's done such critically acclaimed documentaries like 13th. She has a show called Queen Sugar, which has also gotten a lot of attention. And of course, Selma, right, Brian? I mean, that was an amazing film. If you care about the civil rights movement or Lyndon Johnson or how the Voting Rights Act was passed, you have to see this movie. It became actually very controversial at the time. And one of the big controversies around it was why Ava was not nominated for Best Director, which we get into a little bit in this conversation. And of course, that omission really helped fuel the Oscars So White campaign, which really changed the face, literally, of the Academy. Anyway, we had the privilege of talking to Ava at Disney Studios, where she was in the middle of a deadline for her upcoming movie, A Wrinkle in Time. And we covered a lot of ground from her relationship with her frequent collaborator, somebody named uh, Oprah, I think is her name. Yeah, you may have heard plus, of her. I think that's how you pronounce it, Oprah. The, yeah. the official Ava DuVernay Barbie, and how she went from doing PR and publicity to making movies, a pretty dramatic career transition. And folks, by the way, you know the drill. We left our studio. We ventured out into the actual world for this recording. 
And so the audio isn't perfect because we did it in Ava's office. So we hope you'll forgive us for that. And in, in, in Ava's office where she had very good snacks, we might add, including those little breadsticks with Nutella. She told me to help myself. So what can I say, people? I did. You, you taught me the true meaning of asking forgiveness, not permission. Anyway, <laughs> so here is our conversation with the one and only Ava DuVernay. I kept thinking about the Alicia Keys song, This Girl is on Fire. <laughs> My God, woman. First of all, thank you for doing our of podcast. Course, I, you're because, doing a million things. But Katie, you too. So wow. you know, was, you're my girl. People don't know. We hang out when we're... Yeah, exactly. We've, we've partied together. That's <laughs> right. You've partied together. We have. Well, I'm. Pr- we first the, met what was um, Ava at Sundance. Yes. And we sat across the table <laughs> from her. I think she probably thought... I was super weird at the time. I, I thought but, she was um, fantastic. A- Ava, she was obviously doing great things, but it was really just, before yeah, just this started. huge development in Ava's career. Correlation or causation, we don't know. <laughs> I, don't think so. I had very little to do with it, but I was fascinated then by Ava's backstory, which I want to get to in a moment. But first, we have to say... Yes. Mazel, mazel, Ava, because you have been nominated for lots of Emmys, right? (laughs) For 13th? For 13th, eight Emmys. Eight Emmys for 13th. And you know, the great thing about it is when it happens, it doesn't feel like you thought it would. It feels lovely, but like a cherry on top because the main thing was making the piece and people loving it and responding to it. So when the nominations came in, I was like, oh, wow, this is lovely. I was more excited for my editor and for my, my sound mixer who all got nominated and uh, and so it just helps me stay focused because I just like telling the stories and I like the people's reaction because everyone walks up to me about 13. You know, people walk up, they want to talk about it. And so it's been a gift that keeps on giving. It's it still, though, must be a nice piece of validation for you, right? It's nice. I just, it didn't, it doesn't hit the same as I always dreamed it would. You know, you think you're going, you're making the speech in the mirror and you, it, it's your brush is the, is the, is the trophy. You know what I mean? And you think it's going to feel a certain way. It's really nice. But on the but other it, hand. it isn't everything that I thought it would be. But it did feel, I think, uh, uh, sort of like a diss when you weren't nominated for Selma. Uh, for a lot of other people, I never thought I would be nominated. I'm on record a long time before the nomination saying it, it wouldn't happen. Why not? Uh, because I don't know anyone in my in my in my branch. It's very much about, you know, I it's have kind no of connection. An insiders club. Yeah, and I don't so I don't know them and they don't know me. And so that's a big part of what that is. It's just that co- connection with your peers and I didn't have it at that Hollywood time. Hollywood is just like high school in other a little words. Bit. As a moviegoer, I really resented it. I, I even <laughs> oh, if you no. didn't, even if it didn't bother you, no, it was you, only because you it, know it me bo- and I'm your but pal. But no, no, but it, but no, no, really. If I no. didn't even know you, and the movie Selma, mm. and the fact that um, I thought it was a fantastic movie, and I think it should have been recognized. But I think this was sort of on the cusp of people understanding how. Um, undiverse the Oscars right. were, right? It was right? the year before. It was, this was the, that was the year that set all that conversation well, off. It helped to spur the Oscars so white And I think campaign. That, was, that was valid. It, that came from the fans and uh, and it was a valid conversation that needed to happen, not just for people of color, but for women, which has become a big, big conversation now. So they got people thinking differently about it. And so I'm happy that And do you that think that, that campaign was effective? Do you think it drove real change? Oh, it did. I mean, it was it was definitely had fundamental changes within the academy in terms of uh, the ways in which new members are brought in, in terms of the ways in which the conversations that are had around the table. Um, I know because I've been sitting in them and I can see how they've changed since I joined the academy in 2012 to now. Radically different. Isn't it amazing how when people are made aware of an yeah. issue— 
uh, how rapidly, in some cases, change can change happen. Change can happen so fast. It really can. You what know? do you think it were the keys to to changing sort of the color, if you will, of the Academy and, and, and the choices they were making? I mean, I think it was the uproar and the outrage and the real urgency that people were feeling at the time about this is unacceptable. And it's not as if the conversation hadn't happened before, but there was something of alchemy about— you know what whatever was going on in the culture around that time black that really, lives matter absolutely might have. there was a there was at the forefront there was a conversation whether it be people of color or women that this was no longer something that could be uh set aside but that when you're talking about change you know we, we were talking about another conversation we had about um about your your doc and your doc work how quickly i even look at the trans community how quickly I mean, I can think of three years ago, no one even knew how to articulate or what it meant or how or had a respect for it being, a, a, you know, an issue that we all had to embrace or a reality that we had to embrace or we should embrace. And now it feels very, you could have a conversation with people and they may not know everything that they should know, but there's a, at least a base of recognition. Right. And that's been, I mean, what would you say? I'd say two, three years. Am I, yeah, am I definitely. being conservative? No, or? I think you're right. And I think that Caitlyn Jenner did a lot Huge. to bring it out into the forefront. And then that provided, I think, a foundation for a conversation to talk about right. it and then actually paid the way for a documentary yeah. like mine yeah. that couldn't have happened, I think, in a weird way without Caitlyn right. kind of uh, making more people understand mm-hmm. that this was an actual phenomenon and that this was something that was affecting a lot of people mm-hmm. that was being kept in the closet. Yeah, that's a, that's a reality for a lot of people. And so, before we yeah. go further down this road, I want to talk uh, a little bit about who you are and where you come from for okay. people who don't know, because mm-hmm. you grew up a, a few miles, but also a world away from here, mm-hmm. near Compton. And you've talked a lot about this. How how did your childhood and background kind of shape the director that you are today? I had a beautiful childhood, a very, you know, lovely community, a very tight-knit, a gorgeous, loving family. Um, but my childhood was set in a community that was, you know, uh, kind of besieged by LAPD at that time that really uh, used excessive force in instances when it wasn't necessary. Uh, in instances of everyday life, uh, the, the the constant surveillance, the police presence living under that made it so that I'm hyper aware of issues of criminal justice and, and, and the ways in which law enforcement have really... Um, can kind of rule with an iron hand in some places. And so that that's made its way in my work from the early narrative films to the docs now, to the TV show, uh, to something that's uh, a part of my DNA and something that I just want to continue to talk about. Did you have any firsthand experiences, Ava, growing up where, you know, an image has stuck with you or an experience has stuck with you? I just read a Brian Stevenson piece in the New York Review of Books about... Such a good piece. He was... Did you... Yeah, it was so great. And I guess that same story about being a young lawyer in Mm -hmm. Atlanta in a Mm -hmm. racially mixed neighborhood Mm -hmm. was also in his book, Just Mercy. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I both have a complete crush on Brian Stevenson. We love him. We We love love him. Love him so much. My sister works for him. Really? At Equal Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. And my daughter's working for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Wow, this they're both in Montgomery, Alabama. They need to get together. That's right. Exactly. We, need we have to, to hook connect them, up. them. We will. But anyway, I mean, that experience he described, Brian, real quickly, he was coming home. He was listening to a radio show about sliding the family stone. You could just put yourself yeah, you in his really shoes. Could put yourself and you really He was staying in the car, as sometimes you do when you're you're mesmerized by something on the radio. And an Atlanta police officer came. Apparently, someone had made a call. He was, as I said, in a racially mixed neighborhood. Basically, almost, you know, killed him. Yeah. And the fear that he had as this Harvard-educated lawyer mm. coming back from his firm, 
And I don't know, that the scene he set was so profoundly moving mm-hmm. to me, and it mm-hmm. really made you realize in, in sharp relief mm-hmm. what it was like. What about you, Ava? Was there anything for you that made you think, this is completely screwed up? Yeah. Many, many l- little things throughout my, my uh, growing up, but there was one in particular around my father recently uh, on to another realm, recently departed, and he was in his our house watering the lawn in the backyard of his own home. And police came through the uh, side gate and wrestled him to the ground in his own backyard. We had to rush out of the house. um, With no warning? They didn't say anything? No. Guns drawn on us, my mother and and, uh, it was me. My sisters weren't there. How old were you at the time? uh, I don't know. maybe, Maybe 11 or 12, something like that. To see my father, such a proud, elegant man, on the ground um, with police on top of him, guns pointed at us, not knowing who we were. And basically, in the end, they said he matched the description of someone who was running through the neighborhood, um, despite the fact that he was saying, this is my home, I am the homeowner, in his own backyard, not safe. So those kinds of, uh, like I say, excessive police force and a disregard for just the humanity of people, uh, something that I grew up with. It was just a, a part of daily life. Well, and so, you spoke very eloquently about yeah. this in The Atlantic. You said you'd see a cop growing up, and you didn't think safety like your counterpart who didn't grow up in Compton. You'd think, oh, boy, what are they coming for, and who are they coming right. for? Yeah, exactly. So it's because of instances like that. So, you know, I find it it makes its way in my work, and um, at one point I would try to push that away and say, oh, I need to— really engage with Hollywood in the ways that are standard Hollywood. <laughs> but I've just tried to embrace the fact that these are the things I'm interested in, and it's okay to talk about those things. And whether it's a documentary or whether it's like a series like Queen Sugar, you know, to be able to find the spaces where I can say the things I want to say about these issues is okay to do. I read, Ava, I learned something new about you every day, <laughs> Ava, and I read that you actually helped cover the OJ trial for CBS. I did. For CBS. How did I not know that? For CBS, And you yeah. became disillusioned with journalism. Yeah, I Why? really, really wanted to do what you do, Katie. Yeah. I really wanted to be a broadcast journalist. I don't know why that was in me for uh, all through high school and uh, and going through college. That was what I wanted to do. And uh, so anyway, I got this prestigious internship with the CBS Evening news. This is the Dan and Rather Connie Chung era, the small window when it was both of them. Right. Almost as prestigious as the later Katie Couric era, of course, <laughs> oh, we need to say. Almost, almost. But it was a slim window when it was the two of them. Right. And that landed at some point around the trial. Anyway, the trial was just starting. I got assigned my juror packet. I was assigned to one specific juror. And I was like, this is it. It's a few short months, and I'll be on the air anchoring. Like, this is, <laughs> it's all happening for me. See you but, later, Connie that's Chung. That's it. Forget it, Connie. <laughs> and, um, and basically, I was kind of capped out in front of a juror's house and, um, and you know, kind of invited to kind of look through her, I don't know, trash, things, mail, get a sense of when she came home, who was coming. And I just felt like, ah, this is not what I went to. It was around the time, the OJ time, where I think things— the, 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 the traditional news had to become a tad more tabloidy to compete with a new world. I right. think I felt that. Yeah. And so things were changing and I didn't, um, I didn't take to it. Well, I wasn't good at it. And so instead you went down. I got the... no trash, no dirt. <laughs> no trash. <laughs> I was no like, dirt. this lady's boring. I don't yeah, know. Well, that was a bad assignment and probably not a fair representation of the kind of work oh, you no. might have been able to do. If I would have right? stuck with it. You know, I was just, I, I couldn't see through when you idealize something. 
You know, Ava, that that brings me back to, though, the OJ trial. And I just want to kind of take a left turn for a moment because I was in the hallway when that verdict was announced. Oh, wow. And I was actually standing near OJ's kids. Oh, wow. And I'm not sure if either of you remember, of course, you remember the external outside reaction, but the black and white reaction oh, I was, was yeah. so dramatically different. The time, yes. But I, mean, I know you remember that, but in that hallway was a, a microcosm mm. of sorts of this racial divide mm-hmm. in this country. And I'm curious what you thought about the reaction by the African-American community, because I have to say, I was, I was stunned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew Johnny Cochran very well mm-hmm. and the whole defense team. I actually love Johnny Cochran. And, and yet it was pretty clear that OJ had committed this mm-hmm. crime. And the jubilation when he was not convicted, when mm-hmm. he was acquitted, and the image of this very different reaction from black and white mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. uh, is still somewhat hard for me, less hard for me to understand, mm-hmm. given mm-hmm. everything that I've explored and read and people I've talked to. But help me understand it a little more. I mean, I think it was, and then we've had, you know, both documentary and narrative pieces that have since explored that whole case. I mean, it was a seminal case in American criminal justice, but also speaks so clearly to, you know, the racial divide. And I think, you know, just being around at that time, I was in college, the feeling was, you know, so often the criminal justice system is unjust towards the black man, right? It's so skewed. It's so and years deformed. and years it's of that. So destructive. I mean, day in and day out, years and years of never winning, of never that the win on such a high in a such a high profile way. Even though intellectually, you know, this is not a good guy, but the optics and the the triumph of finally being on the on the winning side uh, i think was such a powerful um it was such a powerful feeling did you uh, feel that way i i don't remember how i felt at the time about it i don't know if i was following that closely i was in college and having a good time <laughs> yeah. um but i do remember a sense of kind of drama and excitement and, and energy during the uh, the high speed chase i was in la i saw it go by i mean at some point it became um you know, when when I was young and then watching it, it became, it was entertainment in a way, you know, and not regarding it as, you know, a life or death matter and, and people who lost their lives over this, you know, it became spectacle. It was a cultural spectacle. I think that's how people, you know, you know African-Americans, uh, some people were able to divorce themselves from the actual lives lost and say, wow, we won. When really it, it wasn't quite the win that, that, that it was embraced as at the time. Yeah. So yeah. rather than pursue journalism, you decided to move toward the entertainment yeah, I was industry. Impatient. <laughs> so I said, forget that, that you wanted to do for all these I'm years. I'm not going to be going through I some jury's trash. Yes. <laughs> but you chose a kind of unconventional path for what you're doing now. You started your own marketing and publicity agency, and you did that for many years, even after you had started making films. Mm-hmm. How did that training and background inform your filmmaking? I uh, loved films. So what that did is just allowed me to immerse myself in film even more. Uh, so I started out after uh, the the news stint um, working for studios and publicity firms that specialized in films. How do you, as a film goer, when you think about how do you know that a film is coming out? 
You know, how whatever, whether it's the commercial, it's the red carpet, it's the Entertainment Tonight's piece, it's the review in the newspaper, all of the ways that you know that a film is coming out, that's what the publicist and the marketers do. So that's what I did. And I loved it because it got, gave me close proximity to filmmakers and I love sets and movies. And so just uh, working for 13 years and film that closely gave me a set of tools that really made up for not going to film school. Because uh, I didn't go to film school, but I was working as a publicist on film sets and traveling with filmmakers. And uh, so when I decided to make my own films, I had some base uh, to go from, even though I hadn't gone to a traditional school. And so all that marketing experience must have come in incredibly handy because so much of filmmaking today, obviously, is the artistry and what you're doing to to produce this this piece of work, but also to make sure it's seen and heard and that people are aware of it. I mean, I'm sure that's been, ha- have you continued to wear your marketing hat it's in some interesting. ways? I, it's really odd. I don't think about marketing when I'm casting. I don't make, think about it when I'm making the thing. Uh, and I, I think knowing uh, so much about marketing and publicity, uh, I know that you can market and publicize anything. So I just let myself be free with what I'm doing. When the time comes to market and publicize, I can have different kinds of conversations with studios and networks than right. a lot of my filmmaking partners do or colleagues do because I know what they're talking about in a, in a deep way. Um, but I really don't think about Like, I don't think when I'm casting, oh, this person will be good on a poster. Or, oh, this person. Uh, I know that I can publicize this piece of paper sitting on the desk. I can do that. I can make you want to read this piece of paper on the desk. But that must be very so useful, even after the film is done, even after, right? Right. So it allows me to be free in the creative because I don't feel constrained by having to do certain things in order to get publicity. Didn't you, weren't you working in publicity and then you got hired to actually, what what movie was that? Was that it Selma? It was Selma. In an Wait. earlier iteration, you were actually, I read, I a publicist. Oh, I Brian did his homework and he tells me. You really did. But basically, you started. I was a publicist for Selma. How crazy is that? (laughs) Wait, how did that happen? And then you became the director. I know. It was Lee Daniels was directing it. That's right. And I was not directing yet. I was asked to come on and be the publicist for it because they wanted to have conversations with the King Estate and they wanted someone to be in the middle of that. And so the liaison between the filmmaker and the family. And that's what I was hired to do by Pathé, the French financiers. I still have the contract where I signed to be the publicist, but the film never went forward. So that fell apart. I did get paid, though. And, <laughs> and, and so years later, maybe five years later, you know, life, you know, life is mysterious, crazy And Lee Daniels thing. made the butler, and he said that he had sort of made his civil rights movie. Yeah, so, so he, he didn't want project. to do so. Yeah, he left the project, and David Oyelowo had been cast by him and remained with the project. David Oyelowo was the actor who played Dr. King. I just happened to work with David Oyelowo on my little indie film. So David said, you know, this film doesn't have a director. You're a director I want to work with again. Can I put you together with the with Pathé, the French financiers? And I was like, yeah, I know them already. I'm the publicist for this movie. Did you <laughs> so, want to kiss David on the mouth? I do. And I do often <laughs> want to kiss him on the mouth. For a variety of reasons. Yes, yes, yes. He's, yes. he's a great friend. But yeah, he basically, when I think of like one seminal moment of one person who made a critical d- decision that helped me sit where I am today talking to you at Disney, uh, you know, posting Wrinkle in Time. It was David connecting me to Selma. Well, it had a $20 million budget. And yeah. while I think obviously, clearly, David thought you were extraordinarily talented and had great potential, I mean, that was a pretty big leap, wasn't it, Ava? Yeah, I think, yeah, the 
The film before was 200000 to $20 million. But, you know, the bottom line is so many of my male counterparts make that leap and no one blinks an eye. I mean, it's, an, it's a standard leap from indie to the $15, 20000000 million range. Right. So, I mean, it, it's not unprecedented in any way. And it was quite easy. So yeah, without yeah. relitigating the the kind of the controversy around how LBJ was portrayed in that film, because I think that's been discussed at length, I I, I do want to know your view on sort of how much of a responsibility filmmakers have when they're depicting historical events to be as truthful as possible, or is there artistic license to tell the story in a way that that diverges a little bit from the facts of history? Where where is that line drawn to you? Yeah, I think it was interesting because during that time there was a bar that I was being held to, a standard that I was being held to that you know counterparts who are not African American are not held to. You know, uh, when I look at an Oliver Stone, when I look at a Catherine Bigelow, when I look at many many people who've taken uh, Ridley Scott, I mean, so many people that are dealing with issues around history or, or, or true events um, that are kind of not raked over those coals. I think there are a lot Oliver of Oliver Stone's movies aren't true to history. <laughs> you know, but, but the idea that when you say the word story, you're inserting um, opinion perspective in a certain point of view. I mean, we can all tell the story of sitting here in this room together right now, and we will all tell it in a different way. I'm seeing and feeling different things than you may be seeing or feeling, and that's your version of the story and your version of the story. Who's to say what's wrong and who, what's not? And I, so I think gross distortions are one thing. I think perspective is another. And in Selma, I took the perspective of an African-American community and the ways in which LB, LBJ was regarded by us, by a lot of Black folk. And, uh, and so that was deemed as wrong and kind of held up as wrong by the LBG li- LBJ library. But it, again, all I was saying was it's a matter of perspective and can't we invite more perspectives into a historical context? What did you make of that whole controversy, Ava? Oh, I thought it was bogus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I've said that before. <laughs> we'll have more with Ava DuVernay from her office here on the Disney lot in beautiful downtown Burbank right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And now back to our conversation with Ava DuVernay. Let's talk about what you're doing now, because we're here in in Burbank. And in lovely downtown Burbank. <laughs> and, and you are editing your brains out on, <laughs> on this new movie you're working on called A Wrinkle in Time, which, of course, many of us read as children. This is something that you're working on with Oprah Winfrey. She's one of the stars. She's yep. one of the stars. And Reese Witherspoon. And Reese. And Chris Pine. And yep. you guys have been shooting in Mindy New Zealand. Kaylin. Is that right? Yeah. We shot in Mindy and Reese and Oprah and I and Storm Reed, the star of the film, young star of the film, all went to New Zealand. Oh, I never knew you could have so much fun in, a, in another, in another, in a place that just, it's very pristine. It's just nature. It's untapped nature is where we were. And I'm from the Compton. I'm from the city. I, I like, I'm a city girl. I was like, what is one to do here? Oh, everything. Really? You know what I mean? What did you do? I, I just am other not than a, make a movie. I, like I don't swim. Like I don't. I don't like dogs and animals. Like I really. I like to be inside and in the city. Like I am not. Like I've never. You're camped. not a hiker. No, I never camped. Like none of that. So you New Zealanders don't <laughs> yeah, have I'm a lot in, New in Zealand, common. <laughs> loving it. Boots, mud up to my ankles, in the jungles, in the forests, and they have a little bit of everything. I thought. And I'm like 44 years old experiencing nature untouched for the first time. How it long was, were you there? We were there for maybe about three weeks. And I visited over that year before four times in the scouting and the preparation. Oh, my gosh. It I want to go to New Zealand. Oh, you'll love it. We'll come for the premiere. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when is it? Come, come. Sometimes in March. March uh, okay. of next year. I definitely want to go when it's warm because yes. their, their summer is our winter. So I was thinking about maybe trying to do a bike trip to oh, New Zealand. It. You'll love it. You'll love it. And yeah. you could finish it up with the premiere of a yeah, I'll just time. Stay, I'll just yeah, stay exactly. Just right on no in. problem. But how did you and Oprah become friends and colleagues? <laughs> it was around David Oyelowo. He's like my fairy godfather. He is. <laughs> Six degrees of David Oyelowo. Really Obviously, is. initially with Selma. Uh, no, initially, oh, no, before uh, initially before that, he had uh, given her, when they were working on The Butler, he played her son. And uh, he was in this small film for me that at one Sundance. And he said, hey, check out this film I'm in. I said, I can't believe you're asking Oprah Winfrey to watch our indie film that we made for $200,000. But he did. And she did. She watched it. And she wrote me and said that she and she tweeted me. I thought I framed the tweet. I was never going to get better than that. (laughs) Oprah Winfrey tweeted me. And uh, (laughs) but she tweeted that she liked the film and encouraged people to see it. Oh, how nice. And from there, as it continued on, um, uh, we started to all collaborate on Selma and next Queen Sugar and next uh, Wrinkle in Time and... And go. you told a very funny story about bringing flowers to Oprah's house. Oh, right. Well, you know, the first time I'm invited to her home was up for Mother's Day. I brought my grandmother. Uh, and she had a lovely Mother's Day brunch. And I went in. And of course, you're going to bring flowers to someone's you're house. You come to their home. Course, you're yeah. So I, I went. I, Katie, I spent the most I've ever spent on flowers. I went to the fanciest place in L.A. I said, How much did you spend on it flowers? Was like, it was like $500 worth of flowers. I mean, that's like, that's what That's rent. a lot of money That's like flowers. half yeah. the rent, right? <laughs> and so I went and uh, I bought these flowers because I said, it's Oprah, I really want to make a good impression. I want to let her know how much she means to me. <laughs> oh, no. I have these flowers. I go in and I give them to her and she's lovely and gracious. She looks at them like she's never seen flowers. Oh, Oh, aren't they lovely? Thank you. And she takes the flowers and she doesn't hand them off. She takes them herself. She puts them in the sink, the whole thing. And out the window of the sink, I can see past the kitchen window, 
a field of endless flowers. <laughs> She's got a garden that looks like the botanical gardens of whatever the best botanical gardens are with like gardeners in, in green green jackets like <laughs> tending to the tulips. <laughs> that was, yeah, my Bringing flower. ice to the yeah, She's so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> she acted as if there was no garden. She uh-huh, just kept going. That's nice. What is it that makes uh, Oprah, Oprah? <laughs> that. You know what I mean? To not blink an eye, to still make you feel special, even though you brought flowers when she's got a field of flowers. It's just the extra thing. She's one of those people, they, oh, you say, uh, you leave her feeling better about yourself, even in a quick encounter. This lovely lady. And she's very normal. Yeah. She's a very normal, lovely woman. So I know we've yeah. got limited time, and I do want to ask you, uh, in the wake of 13th, about the prospects for criminal justice reform mm-hmm. in this country. Because that was supposed to be the one thing that Democrats and Republicans could get together yeah, on. bipartisan moment. Exactly. Didn't happen last year. The prospects have gone down dramatically yeah. under President Trump. Where do you see this issue going? You know, I don't I don't have the answers to where it's going, uh, especially when I think of the political layer and how uh, dire things are right now. But I know what it's done in the community. Uh, it's created a, a unity and a real strength around the issues uh, where, you know, places that might want, once have been fractured around it are, are really coming together and holding hands. It's a very intersectional effort uh, in terms of, you know, you can see Black Lives Matter activists connected with uh, Native Americans in their plight. You can see Native Americans, uh, you know, focused on the Flint water crisis and starting to see the connections between uh, people who are marginalized across, you know, color, religion. I mean, the ways in which all kinds of communities of color and marginalized people are standing up for Muslim Americans. So there's something that's happening there that I think uh, I have to be hopeful is and then and then just like-minded, you know, uh, you know, liberal allies who who aren't of color and who aren't women, right? Saying we will stand with you and we we are a part of this. I feel that, um, and I think that's only going to increase as the kind of the opposition increases. Even the Koch brothers are behind criminal justice reform, and they've you know here they are have very disparate views mm-hmm. from sort of the traditional progressive point of view, mm-hmm. but. Uh, they feel strongly that something has got to be done about yep. mass incarceration and, and criminal justice reform. But And this I, woman, Agnes Gund, have you heard of her? Oh, yes, I know Agnes, Agnes Gund. Gund. Uh, and what she did, she saw the 13th uh, at the New York Film Festival premiere. She immediately called the Ford Foundation and said, what can I do? They said, well, you got money. What do you want to do? And she decided to sell her, her artwork. Um, and create a fund for criminal justice, art for justice, $160 million. Wow. Uh, that she's uh, put aside from her art sales, specifically earmarked for criminal justice reform. So people are, you know, from that to people that are planning community actions in their neighborhoods, there's a lot going on. But clearly President Trump and Attorney General Sessions in particular have cut against that grain and they believe in the old, you know, policy of mandatory minimums and lock them up and, and all the rest. Do you think that they're doing this because substantively they believe in those policies, or do you think there are political motivations behind that? Oh, political motivations. I think they are uh, racist policies, misogynistic policies, policies that are uh, at odds with uh, hu- the good of humanity. So they're I mean, playing nothing- the race card in your in your mind. 
Uh, I think that they are not, that they are disingenuous in their, you know, statements that they're they're looking to make America great. Uh, the, the question is, what America are they trying to make great? It's a very thin slice, and it leaves behind and leaves out a whole bunch of people that look like me. And so, uh, so yeah, you know, the easy soundbite is to say they're playing the race card, but that's not what I'm interested in talking to you about. I'm interested in saying, you know, these folks are saying one thing and behaving another way, and there are a lot of people who have uh, kind of blinders on as to the real destruction that's happening in, in terms of the fabric of what holds us all together. So do you think, I mean, what what can be done? What more? I mean, I think sometimes people see a movie like 13th, which I thought was so extraordinary. My daughter thought it was so important. And, and they say, we've got to change this. But they also, in some ways, feel powerless. Mm-hmm. You know, so if someone listening to this wanted to do something that would contribute to some kind of transformation for the criminal justice mm-hmm. system or some kind of change, what would you tell them to do? Well, I think, you know, the, the reason why I didn't put any easy solutions or 1-800 number or website or anything at the end of 13. Or a call to action. Yeah, <laughs> or a call to action is because, you know, it, it is an, an individual quest, you know, who were you at this time and what did you do? you know, during these circumstances, you were in the world at this time, you saw an injustice. Uh, what did you do? And that answer is going to be different for everyone. For Agnes Gunn, it was one thing. For Malkia Cyril, who works in Oakland and organizes folks on the ground there, it's a different thing. And so the question is a personal, it's an intimate question, because I think it's really kind of um, surface to donate or or, or or sign a petition. Our question with 13th is look inside. What of this whole story really, really hit your heart? And what can you do where you are? And some of it, Ava, I think is just asking people to see the world differently. Sure, and behave and treat, and treat people right? differently. And it could Absolutely. just be, it could inform their day-to-day interactions and how they analyze a news story Absolutely. or how they look at something that's transpiring in their neighborhood. Absolutely, neighborhood. or how they teach their children. I wanted to, to ask you about uh, Central Park Five mm-hmm. because you are now doing a scripted yes. version of that story for Netflix, something that I covered. Um, I interviewed the victim of, of, of a rape and brutal bre- beating in Central Park for which these kids were blamed and convicted. And, Particularly um, by President Trump, who took out a full-page ad, as I recall at the time, saying that these people who were accused of the crime and later exonerated. Sure. Tell me why, um, how that came about and uh, why you're excited about this project. I'm on fire for this project. This is something that I heard about when I was a teenager. Those guys are the same age as I am. And I was on the East Coast in Los Angeles. They were in New York and Harlem. Uh, and I remember hearing it and and, and tuning into it uh, because they were my age. They looked like me. They looked like my friends. And I remember because the news kept talking about this word wilding, wilding. And I was like, what's wilding? <laughs> it was. So I called my cousin who lives in New York. I was like, what's wilding? Is that, That's right. Is that a slang, like New York slang? And they're like, nah, we don't know what it is. Right? So... <laughs> Even that term is so fascinating. Well, it was it? a made-up term by the media that was that was based on a on a slang term called wilding out, which is something totally different. It's like I'm just gonna wild out tonight and have fun. And so it was just this whole distortion of black youth culture at the time that really just you know, came into my head and just never let go that um, when I saw uh, Sarah Burns' great documentary, Central Park Five, it just ignited it even more. And when I got to kind of follow where these guys, what they had gone through, it really, um, it just took hold of my heart. So I started to correspond with one of them, Raymond Santana, on Twitter. Uh, He had actually reached out to me on Twitter, said he liked my stuff. I was like, oh my gosh, you're one of the Central Park Five. We started to correspond and I started to ask about their rights. 
And um, over two years, we've developed it, and we're going to shoot it next year. Yeah, that's and exciting. Twitter seems to be playing it'll be out a, for the thirtieth anniversary of the crime. Yeah. Wow. And Twitter seems to be playing a central role in your career because you're set also for Netflix to direct this movie starring Rihanna and Lupita Nyong'o that started as a kind of internet dream. Yeah. Uh, on Twitter. Well, we haven't confirmed that. That's not a done deal yet. But the ladies are all talking about it, and we'll see if we can we can uh, if it's something real. But it's fun. I mean, just the power of the people on Twitter. Can you too. just briefly tell us that story? Uh, just uh, just a, a Twitter idea, uh, an idea that actually started on Tumblr and then Twitter, and then kind of made its way around social media from uh, a, a couple of different fans who saw this picture of Lupita and Rihanna at a fashion show and started to make up stories about the picture. And it started to go viral. Some of these different ones went viral. And eventually studios started, oh, well, online, people said, oh, wouldn't it be great if Ava directed Issa Rae wrote it? And these women were in a movie. And, uh, and then studios started calling. And, and Issa, Issa tweeted. Is Issa Rae going to do it? We, we, we all we don't know if we're going to do it, it, but we're all talking about it. That's yeah. crazy, yeah, isn't it? How these, where these ideas bubble you up never from know. now. Yeah, you never know. And finally, I know you're you're itching to continue your editing process, <laughs> and you're so kind to give us even this much time. But I have to ask you about the Ava DuVernay Barbie. Oh, right. How funny well, there, was that? That was a thing that just, even now when I hear about it, it just tickles me. Uh, that is a thing that even, you know, when we were ta- started the conversation talking about how the Emmys feel and all of that stuff, that feels like I thought an Emmy would feel. That Barbie. I mean, what a thing. How how can it be? I used to <laughs> love Barbies. I would that was my first storytelling. Is playing with Barbies and making up those stories. And when I but saw But at the one, time you probably didn't have many Barbies who looked like you. I did not. I did not. I did not. And so, I mean, what a thing. And and she has her own director's chair and she's got like <laughs> now like she really looks natural like you. hair like me. And it's just that that's a thing that really lifts my heart and every time I think about it. Sold out in minutes. Sold out and yeah, sold out in Well, you've got your minutes. own Barbie. You got a, all these Emmy nominations. You're doing <laughs> incredible work. I mean, do you have a second to say, take a breath, Ava, and say, wow. This is happening for me, and I feel so, so happy. <laughs> I do. And it's so cool that I get to talk to you this week because I was just talking with Oprah. I said, this is a really special week for me because on Monday, Central Park 5 was announced. Um, on Tuesday, we had this big cover of Ebony Magazine, which is a you know landmark magazine in the Black community with the cast of Queen Sugar, a show that came out of my head and my heart. Which and, we didn't even have a chance yeah, to talk about. You know, but... So that was Tuesday. On Wednesday, we released the first pictures of, uh, of Wrinkle, the first pictures that anyone had seen of it. And then today, Thursday, I sit with you with the Emmy nominations, and uh, I can just say, wow, a week of beauty and happiness. I feel so happy. You know, yes, I'm moving around, I'm going fast, but I am smelling the roses and they smell good. Wow. They smell beautiful. They 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 <laughs> should because everything is coming up roses nice for things. you, Ava. Nice Thank you things. so much. This was so fun Thanks to talk for to, to you. Thanks for coming to see me. We can't wait to see what you do next <laughs> I and next it. and next. Thanks, Katie. Appreciate it. Thank you. you. Bye. To the team who helps make this show possible, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Our producer, Gianna Palmer. Our production assistant, Nora Ritchie. Ryan Connor for recording in Burbank. Jared O'Connell for mixing this show. Plus, of course, Allison Bresnik on social media and Emily Bina, who holds down the fort at Katie Couric Media. Mark Phillips wrote our fantastic theme music. Thank you, Mark. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, lest you forget, you can email us 
at comments at currentpodcast.com or please leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. We truly love hearing from our listeners. We'd love to hear what you like, what you don't like, and what we can do more on the show that might please you. And if you can't get enough of us, I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Katie.Couric on Snapchat. You can find me on Facebook as well. Brian is tweeting up a storm, meanwhile, over at Goldsmith B on Twitter. And don't forget, we so appreciate your ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts and subscribe as well, please. Catch you later, dear listeners. Thanks for listening. Ciao. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.